Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we just finished singing, we know that there could have been something else you did on the cross to save yourself. But we know that in doing that, we would not have been saved. And so we thank you for the cross. And we thank you for the sacrifice. The soldiers led Jesus away. You you may sit. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to be crucified. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. In the curtain of the temple... Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. My friends, behold the cross, for upon it our Savior died so that we may live. I was very humbled by this text when Josh and I first discussed what sermon I would preach this particular day. I've preached a few times in front of y'all and I've taught countless times for the youth group, but something about this just felt different. I've taught the crucifixion story, but I haven't preached the crucifixion story before. And if you didn't know, it's kind of a big deal. And I thought it would be neat for us to read it with all distractions stripped away. You're not looking at me a moment ago. You're not looking at your neighbor. You're looking at the cross illuminated and you're looking at the text of the scripture which tells the story of what Jesus did for us. 
So what we just read is the story of the day that God died. And I want you to hear, whether if it's for the first time or the thousandth time, that he died so you could live. Now I want to connect this sermon today with the greater scope of what we've been doing for the last, uh, really the last year. We've been in a long-term study of the book of Mark, and we now happen to find ourselves in Mark chapter 15. So if you've got your Mark journal, which has that on the cover of it, you're welcome to take that out and flip to October 20th, I don't know what page it is, and, uh, and you can make notes in there if you'd like to. Um, but last week, Josh preached about a lot of things, but about the denial of Peter and the significance of that. And uh, because of what in my mind is just the gravity of this story, I'm not going to start off with a cute sports reference illustration other than to say that as of last night, the Astros have won the ACLS championship and are headed to the World Series. But other than that, I just kind of wanted to jump into it. So that's what we're going to do today. So what has happened that led up to the passage we just read? The night before, Jesus had been praying in the garden with some of his disciples, praying in earnest a lot of things, but one of them was that God would actually take this cup from him if there was any other way. But as many of you know, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And after that time of prayer in the middle of the night, he was arrested by the Romans, led by Judas and some of the Jewish leaders at the time, and he was taken away to a midnight meeting of several religious leaders at the time, and he was put on trial. That didn't go so well for him. At that point, all of his disciples, all of his friends had abandoned or outright denied that they even knew him. He was alone in this moment. A little while later, Jesus faces Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the area, And Pilate, depending on which gospel you read, you you realize that, that he doesn't exactly think Jesus is guilty of anything. Maybe he's an upstart, maybe he's ruffling the Jewish religious feathers a bit, but he's not really done anything. But nevertheless, Pilate has to respond to the anger of the crowd, and so he presents the Jews at the place with an, with a choice. Because it was his tradition to release one of the prisoners back to the people during the Passover week. So he says to the, to the crowd gathered, he says, would you rather that I release Barabbas, who is a like, known criminal, or would you rather that I release Jesus? And the crowd chants, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And so Pilate consents gives them Barabbas, and the crowd is calling out, crucify Jesus, which to Pilate probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It probably doesn't seem like Jesus's crimes are worthy of the horrid death penalty, but that's what they want. And how can he resist a mob like that? And so he literally washes his hands. I don't know if that's where we get that phrase from, but that's one of the earliest circumstances I know of us using that phrase. He washes his hands and says, May the guilt be on y'all. I don't want anything to do with this. But he goes ahead and turns Jesus over to the soldiers to be flogged. Now, all of that happens right before the passage that we read a few minutes ago. That's what has built up to the moment that Jesus is taken by the soldiers and put through all the mockery that we just saw him experience. So the bottom line there is that before he even gets to the cross, he's already exhausted. 
He's been up all night long. He's been put in front of people who are hurling accusations upon him and not even really trying to defend himself. He goes through physical torments. This is not the kind of situation that anybody would want to have to endure. I wish we could go back through the passage I read line by line and dissect every little part because there's so much in there. There's prophecy fulfillment. There's quotes from Psalms. There's allusion to Old Testament metaphors. But I don't want to distract from the main point today. So I encourage you to go back for yourselves, read this story, pull out a commentary, Google some resources. There's a lot in there that we just don't have time to look at today. So instead of chasing down every theological rabbit trail, I want to spend a few minutes touching on a few of those verses and looking for things that I think will help us build towards some application today. So let's look at 16 through 19. Look at the yellow highlighted words. Purple robe, crown, hail, king of the Jews, taking a knee and paying homage to this man before them. These seem to be signs of worship, But as you know from reading the other white words in between there, these are, all of these things are done in mocking. What the soldiers were trying to do was physically, mentally, and emotionally beat down Jesus, who is their prisoner right now. This was pure, unadulterated mockery. However, and not for the last time today, we see a group of people whose response to Jesus is sort of what it should be, except that their intentions are completely backwards. Let's look at this one, 21 through 22. We have this passage where it seems like almost an aside in the greater scheme of this narrative, but we have these two names that get dropped by Mark, Alexander and Rufus, the son of Simon, who was the man that helped Jesus carry the cross. Now, I think the reason that these are here is to help remind us that this story that we're reading right now is set in real history. It's not just some legendary myth that maybe happened, maybe didn't, doesn't really matter. Mark wants us to believe that this thing really happened. And those of us that study Mark, and if you've read things about this before, you know that Mark's gospel was most likely written to a Roman church audience originally. So when he says, Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, the only reason he would have said that is if somebody reading this letter knew who those guys were. So there's a very good chance that these Roman Christians that were probably the first ones to read Mark's gospel would have read this and said, Alexander and Rufus, those are my buddies. Their dad was the one that helped Jesus carry the cross. And so when this was written, it was meant to say to the readers, guys, this really did happen. You know Alexander and Rufus, it was their dad that was there. You can go ask them about it if you want to. Because if this story is true then it marks one of the most significant things in the history of the world. But if it's not true, it kind of loses all of its meaning. So Mark wants to validate the truthfulness of the story. He says, here's how you can believe this happened. Go ask Alexander and Rufus. Their dad was there. He helped Jesus carry the cross. And if this story is true, then it has real life implications for every single one of us. It has eternal consequences. Because if Jesus died for you, in truth, then he died to save you from something and for something else. He's saving you from eternal destruction and for everlasting life. Look at this one right here, Golgotha. 
which means the place of the skull. No place represents punishment and death better than a Roman crucifixion site that is also literally called the place of the skull. I mean, you couldn't have written that into a movie and it been any better. And yet we know that Jesus went to this darkest of places, not to be defeated by it, although it looked like it, but to become victorious over it. The place of the skull was defeated by the death of Jesus. In 26 through 32, we see several different things. But I wanted to point out these three. So we see that there's a sign posted above Jesus' head on the cross, and it said, the king of the Jews. We see that some of the people that are there are saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple, you said you were going to do that and build it back in three days. Well, why don't you just come down off the cross and save yourself? We have religious leaders who are saying, he saved the others, right? But he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They had all of these things, like the first one especially, that's an ironic statement because it's actually true and in fact is an understatement. Jesus was in fact the king of the Jews, but he was the king of all, of all of us. They put it down there as a mockery and didn't even realize that they were speaking the truth. When these guys are saying, he claims he can destroy the temple and, and bring it back, but, but why doesn't he just bring himself down off the cross? Well, the plan was never for him to save himself. It was always about him staying on the cross to save them, the people saying these words, and to save us. It doesn't work unless he stays on the cross. And these other people are saying, he can save others, but he can't save himself. That was kind of the whole point. Was that the only thing that works in this way The only thing that allows us to believe in Jesus today is the fact of what happened because he stayed on the cross and died. If he brought himself down and saved his own life, it doesn't work for the rest of us. They almost got it. They had some of the details, but they were just completely backwards in the way that they were interpreting what was happening in front of them. Now imagine all of Jesus' enemies looking on him, feeling victorious. They've spent all night and all morning, and you could argue that they've been spending a lot more time than that, trying to figure out how can they get this guy on the cross. And they're looking at him, and he's beaten, and he's bruised. And they feel like they've won a victory, and they're mockingly calling him king, and they're mockingly offering him false worship. And they have no idea that worship is actually the correct response to this man. They're just missing the point. Because Jesus was worthy of true worship, and in staying on the cross, he actually became humanity's ultimate sacrificial offering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is really what it all comes down to, isn't it? The reason for his death, the explanation for his agony in the hours leading up to his arrest. Do you remember the passage when he's in the garden and he's, he's praying his heart out. And, and as Josh mentioned last week, like he's praying so fervently that blood actually is seeping from his pores. The agony was intense. This wasn't just preparation for a hard day at work the next morning. He could not have been experiencing more torment in that moment. But why? Was it just because he was going to be crucified? We discussed this earlier, and and I don't think that's why, because other people have died terrible deaths, and some of them we know have, have faced it bravely, like, bring on the death, I'm ready for it, and that doesn't seem to be Jesus's position. So was it simply that he was afraid of death? I don't think so. He was afraid, or he didn't want to experience something, but it wasn't just the pain and the torment. It was the forsakenness. 
Because forsaken literally means to be abandoned. The most holy God cannot tolerate the presence of sin. So sin separates us from God. Because of our sinfulness, we would all be forsaken by God. And Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22 when he speaks these words. And in doing so, he is broadcasting to the world that he has now become the forsaken one in our place. He has substituted himself for us. It's really hard, I think, for us to understand the magnitude of this experience for Jesus, but maybe this image helps. I'm sure that you know from personal experience what it's like to be separated from somebody, and you probably know from those experiences that the closer you are to someone, the harder that separation is to deal with and to handle. Here's a good example. If you have a friend who's got a friend who passes away in their old age, that separation from that friend of a friend is probably not going to make that much of an impact on you because you just weren't that close to them. You might feel sorry for your friend who lost a friend, but, but in terms of your connection, it's not that big a deal. I mean, you're going to be sympathetic, but it doesn't hurt you deeply. But let's say, and I know this is going to sound like an exaggeration, of course, but let's say that you are accused of a crime that you did not commit and you're put on trial and you're found guilty of that crime, and you're sentenced to a one-year prison sentence. And during that one year, you are going to be completely cut off from every single person you know, including your family members. That would be horrible. And the prison sentence itself would be nothing compared to the separation from your family that you would have to endure. Because of how close you are. And knowing that you couldn't be with them, see them, speak with them, that would be the worst part of that punishment. You see, no relationship could have been closer than Jesus' relationship with the Father. And this is one of those profound theological mysteries that we don't have time to dig into. But make no mistake, they had been connected since before the dawn of time. And for the first time ever... Jesus was going to experience what it was like to be separated from God, to be abandoned by him, forsaken by him. But it wasn't because of any guilt that he had brought on himself. He was the innocent party. It was because he was taking up our punishment. He was the wrongfully sentenced prisoner. And Romans chapter 6 verse 23 reminds us that the price paid for sin is death an eternal separation from God. And that is what should await any of us who have sinned during our lives, which pretty sure is all of us. And yet the second part of that verse says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus died so that you could live and his separation from God, whether it was just for the moment of his death or if it was for three days or whoever, how long, who knows how long it was exactly, but his separation from God, which was unprecedented, actually creates a way for us to escape separation from God. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, for some of you Bible scholars in the room, you, you already know what the significance of this is. But for a lot of us, this may feel like a random inserted detail that doesn't have any relevance to the narrative that we're looking at. But the fact that this curtain is torn in two is not simply random. It's actually incredibly significant to the work that Jesus is doing in his death. 
You see, in the Old Testament, when they built the tabernacle, which was the giant traveling tent structure, <clears throat> tent structure that the Israelites took with them during the wanderings, that later kind of morphed into the temple, the brick and mortar temple, stone and mortar. There was a place inside the temple and the tabernacle called the most holy place. And in that place was where they originally kept the Ark of the Covenant and some of the most holy artifacts of the Jewish faith. And that was the place that God was said to dwell in physical form in some metaf- you know, physical, uh, theological way. That was his, his dwelling place on earth. But because he was there, it was such a holy ground that nobody could enter the most holy place. There was a gigantic curtain that was there to prevent anyone from approaching the presence of God. Because if you did so, you would be struck dead by the immense power of God. And only one time a year could one man enter that place, and it was the, the, the high priest. And only after going through these incredibly intricate purification rites to, to be made clean from his sins, only once a year, only one man could approach the presence of God by entering through the curtain. So all the Jews knew that. They knew that the curtain represented the obstacle and the boundary between God and man. And so when this curtain upon Jesus' death gets ripped in half from top to bottom, that was a sign to anyone who was paying attention that there was no longer a barrier preventing man from approaching God. And this had never been true before. It existed Because of our sinfulness, which cannot be tolerated by a holy God. But as Jesus' sacrifice removes our sin guilt, we now get to approach God in confidence. And regarding the centurions, regarding the centurions' declaration that surely this man is in fact the Son of God, I love the fact that the first person to confess the true identity of the Christ is the one who is responsible for seeing that he is crucified. He was in charge of these soldiers. He was probably the one giving the orders to hammer the nails and to raise the cross and to stab with the... He was probably the one giving those orders, and yet he's the one who, in the presence of all of these circumstances, is the first to say, this man is the Son of God. Church tradition says that perhaps this man converted to the faith because of his experience, but, but whether or not that's true... I do believe that this man who was calling out the crucifixion orders for his soldiers to follow, even for that man, Jesus was dying for his sins too. So that on that man's worst day, killing God, there was hope for redemption, even for him. I want to spend the last couple of moments here reading a couple of other scriptures and giving you guys a couple of questions to think about. Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15. It says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature, which was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the the spiritual rulers and the authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them in the cross. Now, let some of those words sink in for a minute. Dead. Alive forgave, canceled, nailed to the cross, disarmed, shamed. These are the works of Jesus through the crucifixion. He took what should have been our punishment upon himself and made sure that it would not have to affect 
us. There's no greater news than that. So I want to ask you two questions. Number one, can you be honest about your record of charges? Because we've all got one. And only you really know what it is. Because a lot of times we keep this thing tucked away in our back pocket, right? For no one else to see. I'm not even asking you to confess them to the person next to you right now. But can you be honest with yourself about your record of charges? One of the reasons I was humbled by this passage was because I can't help but think about my record of charges when I read what Jesus did for me. Can you think about those things and be honest about what you have done with your life, the good and the bad? And can you surrender your guilt and your shame to Jesus? Because he is welcoming us to do so. My friends, Jesus died so you could live free from these things. Last scripture. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old old life is gone and the new life has become. And all of this is a gift of God, is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling or, or bringing back to himself all people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so that we who are in Christ are his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we may be made right with Christ, with God through Christ. See, God, guys, God extends his hand to the unbelieving world through the church. That's his plan. As crazy as it seems sometimes, because we're not exactly perfect, but his plan was to extend his hand of redemption to the world through the church of which we are a part. So for some of you in this room, I want to ask this question. Will you take the hand? Maybe another way I could have said that is, Do you need to take that hand, that outstretched hand of God through the church saying, will you be reconciled to me? Because the prize has been paid, just take the hand. And for some of you in this room, this is the question you need to be asked. Will you be the hand? Are you content just to have received the gift and not feel any obligation to do anything else with it? Or do you understand that God has called each of us who have accepted this gift to go find someone else who hasn't yet taken hold of the hand and help them make that connection? Because that is the call of the cross to the church. Those of us that embrace the gift of God's substituting himself for us have a responsibility and a spiritual obligation to bring others to the foot of the cross. He died so you could live. And I want you to ask yourself, do I need to be made alive in Christ today?